And what Irving is doing is like, uh, it, first of all, it doesn't even play that fucking game. Mm. And it also uh, tanks his own stuff. Turns him into mm. a enigma. Well, we can use the language of finan- finance. He's too volatile. Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith, and this week, Troy is bogged down with end-of-the-term marking and essays and things like that, so we have a guest on to fill in his shoes. The uh, sultry baritone voice of Adam Badawi is going to be taking, although Troy has the baritone voice too, so we always got to get somebody's voice who's deeper than mine. So Adam is joining us. What up, Adam? What's up, Boston? Yeah, I don't like that you're already driving a wedge between me and Troy. Uh, well, <laughs> I haven't even had this a is going to happen. Man. <laughs> it's going to happen anyway. You haven't spoken with him yet, but also with the topic, which we'll tell the listeners about in a second, that's also going to cause a little bit of friction between you and Troy. So, I mean... This is just going to – actually, maybe more with me, but whatever. It's going to happen. So, um, <laughs> uh, so yeah. So Adam um, is a part of the past and present reading group that uh, was started based in the political economy social sciences department at the University of Sydney uh, by Adam Morton and a couple others. Um, and Adam, you have joined – a different Adam. Um, Adam, you've joined for the last two books now. Is that right? Yeah. Started with – Black Marxism by Cedric Robinson and now carried on into Lukash, his right. class consciousness. Right. right. And um, so can you just real quick just give people a 30-second spiel about your research interests or what what kind of describes who you are? Like what drew, drew you to the past-present reading group and, and kind of what's your deal? Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm a, what I do for a living, I'm a policy analyst, I'm a writer. Uh, but mostly I'm, I, I do that policy analysis work for a nonprofit, but mm-hmm. I do have my other interests. And that's that's what led me into the reading group with you guys. One, I had just kept hearing about black Marxism from friends. I mean, every, you know, it does feel like every now and then racial capitalism as a framework comes back into the uh, popular discourse, especially to the zeitgeist, to the yeah. zeitgeist. Right. And so I, was, I had heard about that yeah. book enough. And and I was like, you know, this is an opportunity and excuse to really engage in the, in the book. But my interests are broad, a little like they're you know, broadly speaking, it's post uh, neoliberalism, financialization, globalization, uh, political development, uh, subjectivization. I try to understand a little bit how those broad, you know, jargony phrases actually impact yes. people, movements on the ground. I mean, again, is that broad enough? <laughs> right. But that's pretty broad. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I call myself a professional scatterbrain, and I mean that with everything, not just uh, alternative like things with just like entertainment, academic, whatever, whatever, whatever. But even within academia, I'm kind of a scatterbrain. So yeah. like my interests are so broad that yeah, yeah. And that's honestly, that's what, here. that's what the this conversation is probably going to uncover because it's like yeah, I like a year ago I wrote this thing that was basically trying to apply all of the stuff that I was learning through that ridiculously broad research interest to the NBA, <laughs> uh, which yeah, was yeah. just like this thing that I was obsessed with as a kid, but being a scatterbrain, I mean, you took that as more your, your moniker. So I would feel like I'm coming on your show to be like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a scatterbrain. I can't do that. So, <laughs> yeah. but it does make sense uh, because, you know, yeah. I just spent like a good month trying to apply like 
uh, uh, Althusse to like the National Basketball Association. Here's how we should approach it as a cultural product, as a as a, a ideological apparatus, <laughs> state apparatus. Yeah, and and for people who are familiar with the show, you can already tell that this is where the friction is going to come in here with Troy because Troy is a big NBA head, well, just a basketball head in general. So the fact that we're doing an episode that's going to talk in some ways about basketball without him. Is uh, is a little bit of an affront, but what we're hoping gonna we're gonna do, as I say often on the show, is we're gonna put an ellipsis at the end of this, and this is more of like the warm up, you know. This is the warm up. We're fluffing each other in a way, and then Troy will come in and finish us off. Okay, that's kind of to use a totally crass reference. That's how this is going to go. But before we get into the conversation, I do want to just remind people that if you haven't already heard about it, or if you just didn't um, care to check it out yet, our merch is up. Finally, we've been talking about it forever. Uh, we've got mugs, we've got totes, we've got t-shirts, um, we've got like I- or like phone cases for iPhone cases, and I think there's some, some other stuff up there. But yeah, so you can go to owlsatdawn.com and you can check out the merch page. That's owlsatdawn.com. You can also check out my Instagram which is A-U-S underscore H-A-Y. That's A-U-S underscore H-A-Y. And you can check out some of the photos from of the merch, of the mugs. Like my favorite thing is I – actually, I have my own. It's uh, We have one mug that was designed by this artist named Alan Mitchell, and it's uh, like a cartoon of two owls. And there's like one owl that's kind of going off on one and one owl that's kind of like giving the other owl like a bit of like the stink eye. I'm the one that's going off on one. Troy is the other owl, and I'm going off about Heidegger, and then eventually the, the, the Troy owl says, fuck Heidegger. So we're calling it the fuck Heidegger mug, but it's great. It's like this little cartoon and kind of um, animated almost like a – like in what are they called? Like little plates for like like comic book plates. You know how there's like a tile, like a story, a story, a story, whatever. It's like that, but it's around the mug. It's cool. Um, it's rad. Alan's a great artist. We love Alan. Thank you so much, Alan, for designing that. And uh, so, yeah, so if you're interested in these fun mugs, you can go check them out. There's other ones. We got one that says bullshit with an impunity on it since that's kind of our deal here. So, yeah, go to owlsatdawn.com. You can check out the merch page, and then you can check me out on Insta at A-U-S underscore H-A-Y. That's Oz Hay. As my middle name is Hayden. So AUS underscore H-A-Y. Owls at dawn.com. Check out the merch page. Also, go to Patreon if you are a patron. If you can uh, throw us some pennies and support the show, we'd really appreciate that. You get access to bonus content, yada, yada, yada. We actually have a poll up at the moment to choose what our next patron chosen episode is as well. So if you are a patron, if you haven't voted, get over there ASAP so that we can finalize that poll and we can get on that madness. Okay? All right. That's all the admin shit. Let's start talking here. Okay, so this episode's going to be a little bit different. We're not going to do the shitty minute, the sticky leaves. Adam and I are just going to kind of bullshit for a little bit of time here. And the, basically, the, what, the way this kind of idea came about was that we were in, uh, before the reading group last week got started, I don't even know how we got talking about this, but we were talking about like players associations and union power, collective bargaining power and shit like that in sports franchises. And Adam and I are like the only two Americans in that group. So we were talking about the NBA and the rest of the internationals were looking at us like, what What are we talking about here? So, but then Adam and I kind of had like a good 10 or 15 minutes where we were just talking about this shit. And I was like, you know what, we could, we could talk more about this kind of stuff later. So Adam, do you want to kind of catch people up? What were we talking about? And 
And I just want to say this too, for people who aren't interested in basketball, this is, again, if you are interested in basketball, great. If you're not interested in basketball, there's going to be something I think much broader here. You're going to learn probably a little bit about like power in basketball. We're going to use some names and shit like that. So there might be some inside baseball stuff, but you know, just bear with us, but uh, try to stick through the conversation and you'll, we'll learn about like the interesting, the interesting political, social, and ethical stuff that we can think about with regards to sports. And that was my argument, right? Is that there's actually something meaty here and that people oftentimes denigrate sports because it's just supposed to be mindless entertainment. But I was like, no, there should be some real research on like players' unions and stuff like that. And that was kind of how I started it. But what else, Adam? What am I forgetting here? No, that was good. And that was exactly where the conversation ended in the reading group because you're exactly right. Most of the people there were like, I think there was actually a comment in the chat that was like, is this about basketball? Like we were <laughs> and using like, right. you know, re- referring to people like, you know, obscure names like LeBron James and Kevin Durant. <laughs> that was so we couldn't really flesh it out there. But it started uh, because I remembered a point you made in the conversation with Troy about Kyrie Irving uh, and, and the media, ah. the media response to Kyrie Irving sort of like uh, almost um, crusade against just like the, he he re, uh, commitment to rejecting the premise of the of, of media in the NBA and and how they basically like they ask questions of, I'm sure they are looking for a story but I think in his opinion they're mostly looking for a way of distorting or contorting his words uh, and then and you had I thought a really good take on actually a, a better way of looking at Kyrie Irving than the consensus approach to him which is basically to say that he's you know crazy or like you know just like a Mm. little bit of a wacko like idiosyncratic like you know don't don't pay attention to him or pay attention to him only to the extent that we can maybe get some comedic fodder out of things he says uh if you want to repeat uh, your point or i could remember because i remember it well i liked it a lot i thought it was an interesting way yeah go ahead yeah what what were we saying yeah or you you said that irving base you know even, you know, so the example was a comment he made about uh, f- the flat Earth conspiracy. He, you know, I, I don't know why this was in the news, but it was, and it or maybe he he put it back into the news <laughs> by making this yeah, comment. Yeah. But basically, he was like, uh, either he committed <laughs> to being a flat Earth conspiracist, or basically said like, I don't know, like I don't know, uh, really, like I haven't been up there, I haven't seen uh, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the uh, you know the, the the Earth really is round. Uh, so like why why would I believe uh, in this thing that the scientists have told me uh, is is in fact the case and then and you basically said that we should look at him as as basically saying like you know this is a lot of knowledge that we just take for granted that's considered part of the general you know intellect or whatever or uh, you know a, a, a set of facts uh, we we learned it in exactly the same way that we learned that the Earth. Uh, it was around. Sorry, <laughs> I think maybe I repeated. Yeah, that, right. And so he's basically saying, like, in this more, uh, in this more brash way, uh, something that we should probably a, a way of being critical that we should extend to most of the things we take to be just you know, uh, un, un uh, uh, true without without actually a, a second guess. Uh, and, and yeah, and there's a, like a yeah. class and race based politics in there too, right? Where he's kind of like, hey, man, in I, where the way I grow up, I don't necessarily just trust the authorities and everything they say, right? So, so how are you going to then try to just presume that I don't have any questions? Like, uh, I don't know. I, I, how do I just trust a bunch of these dudes in lab coats or whatever he's envisioning in his head, right? Yeah. And um, there is something interesting in that. Now, do I think that he's right? No, he's 
probably very, 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 very likely wrong. I mean, could be we're all living in a fucking hologram, and who knows? Like, I, it could be. There's a, a logical possibility that that is the case, but um, it's very likely that he's wrong. But still, the point is, is to kind of understand what it was that he was saying, if you will, to understand the subtext, to scrape beneath the subtext, and to really understand that what he was doing is he was making a statement, sort of expressing a position or a disposition and orientation within and to power, right? And he's saying, like, why am I just going to trust? We might even put some racial terms on it and class terms on it. Why am I going to trust these uh, rich white power institutions that just because they say something that that's right when in my history and the way that I have kind of grown up is that you don't necessarily just trust those people all the time, right? Um, you could think about the issues. We could tie this in even to issues with the Black Lives Matter movement. And the NBA has been at the forefront of the sports leagues um, with the Black Lives Matter protests and things like that, at least now since like Kaepernick and stuff like that kind of like spearheaded it in the NFL. But, um, you know, the NBA has been very active and taking a stance. And then obviously you saw all the jerseys and things like that during the playoffs of being very outspoken and participating um, in these these activities. And again, one of those things is that there's a um, a sort of contestation against certain power structures. And so I, I think hearing his voice and understanding where it comes from is extremely important. And I think the thing is we oftentimes don't do that. I was talking about this with a friend this weekend. Oftentimes we just kind of – we forget to try to like, as cheesy as it might sound, walk in another person's shoes. But it's really important to try to empathize and sympathize and then scrape beneath the surface to be like, well, what are they really saying? You know? Like – like, what they're saying with their mouth is most often not what they're really saying. So what's going on underneath? And I think that's what, what Troy, I think Troy was the one who brought it up, and then we had a conversation about it. And I think that's what we were trying to get at. So, yeah. And it's another uh, a good point here you made at the end is, like, I think really the thing that uh, Irving, like, he, a disservice he does to himself is just not speaking in the language that a lot of reporters or uh, consumers mm. uh, find legitimate or authoritative uh i noticed this too he tries to to speak in their language but it's not something it's not he's not like uh well versed right but mm. i actually do think that there's like some some insight there obviously um that isn't able to get across uh, he's not able to get across in the way he wants it to be which is like this you know coming mm. from left field offering something that's like you know, counterintuitive, you know, from the hip. Super uh, insightful or something yeah, like that. Yeah, wild, insightful point. Yeah. And he says it with the gravitas, <laughs> right, uh, that would be becoming of someone who's dropping that kind of knowledge. But it's like, mm. you know, something like, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe the earth is flat. Maybe like, and again, flat, bro. You could read in, you should, you should <laughs> yeah. read into, like, what is he really trying to say? He's, you yeah. know, like, may, maybe, yeah. It, it's a, it's an easy, simple narrative to be like, yeah. There's a, a that bad, that guy's just a he's a basketball player and he's he's dumb and I'm and I'm the media guy, or I'm the NBA mm. fan who's not good at basketball. Uh, so at least <laughs> what I have on Kyrie Irving is that you know he's he's you know I, I'm I'm smarter than him. That's an easier narrative for a lot of people. Um, yeah, but it does get across. It, like the, the point is like he's not speaking in this academic language. Uh, I I do I would want him to just not think that he needs to to make the point he's trying to make, which I do think is like. You know, aside from the the Earth uh, conspiracy point, like uh, that, there's something called like a player experience that a lot of observers, fans, mm. media guys don't have access to, right? Mm. <laughs> uh, but they try, inst they they try to have the players translate that into their language, 
rather than mm. try as best they can to get into uh, you know close to to what like camaraderie or teamwork or you know you know in our I guess in some other jargon that like their, their labor process would be is that is that why fucking when you listen to interviews it's always the same thing that they say over and over the questions mm-hmm. that are asked are always the same the answers are always packaged the same and it's like it's because these players and they've been groomed right they're groomed by the front office to be like hey this is how you answer these questions and this is the narrative that we're going to use like if there's a rumor about a fight that happened this is how we're gonna spin it right like not everybody follows that to the letter especially if you've got burner twitter accounts <laughs> kevin durant um but uh <laughs> but for the most part you know uh there there's like a um there's a, a curation that's taking place you know people are definitely they're trying to manage these athletes and a lot of times it just comes out like i just think it's fucking boring like i don't even listen to interviews anymore because i'm like dude they're not saying anything interesting and then uh, something does happen kind of interesting, like when Kyrie Irving says maybe the earth is flat or like that article that you showed me today that is kind of interesting, right? So can you tell people – that's that's where it's like it's breaking it's breaking the rules and it's no longer using the translation machine. It's no longer using the rules that are provided and it's doing something a little bit different. Can you tell people what, what is going on here? Yes. What is this piece? That, yeah. Yes, I love that. I love that move from Irving. So what he did was he released a state. So the NBA season is about to start uh, now, uh, and it's uh, for, which is for, crazy because it just ended like yesterday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so for, so for people who maybe know, like usually the NBA season starts in October or and the training camp starts in like September or whatever. But obviously this is a different year. Uh, so they rushed back to play, finished up last season. We can get well. We will, Austin. Get into the whole dynamics that led into that, uh, and okay. then. But also, yes, uh, profit is so important, such that we need to also now start literally like like the day after the NBA season, twenty twenty season ends. So we're back, and Irving just preemptively he missed the end of last season. So we haven't had, no uh, NBA reporters, NBA fans haven't had a chance to talk to him in like you know six seven months, and he just re- preemptively releases a statement saying, "I'm excited." Uh, to start the year, I'm looking forward to competing. I will not be uh, speaking to the media this season. Like th- that's the the statement for him this year, and you know he basically was an, an interesting point. He he says the things that they usually ask for. Oh, what are you looking forward to this year? Are you mm. you know what are your expectations? Looking forward to competing. Excited for the season to start. That's it for me for this year. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, what I liked about it was because they punished the heck out of him for for the. Uh, the response he had, uh, or like you know, like his diatribes to the media or whatever, they punished the shit out of him. And so he was like, so they are engaged in this th- in this like kind of like uh, you know, every now and then one will send a shot across the bow. Someone will call Irving dumb. Irving will do some passive aggressive thing. So this is his his latest right, his latest strike. Fuck yeah. you. I'm not I'm not talking to y'all this year. I'm not here for you guys to distort contort my words. Um, and uh, you know what it then- reminded me of? It reminded me of Marshawn Lynch. Uh, at the Super Bowl a few years ago. Do you remember? Do you do you follow NFL yeah. too? Yeah, yeah. So for people listening, so you have to, and it's even in the article that you sent me, it talks about how there's like a, a mandatory statement that players must speak with the media. What is it after the game or under certain circumstances, right? And it's the same thing in the NFL, right? Especially during Super Bowl week and stuff like that. Um, where it's just a huge amount of media to pump up the game, and the players have a responsibility to be good employees, if you will, of the NFL. And Marshawn Lynch famously got fined for skipping out on some interviews. So then he started.
started showing up and literally for what? Like, it's like there's a minimum. You have to be there for seven minutes or something like that. And he put a timer up on the table and he said, I'm just here so I don't get fined. And every time a reporter asked a question, he said, I'm here so I don't get fined. I'm here so I don't get fined. I'm here so I don't get fined. It was chef's over kiss. and over. Chef's kiss. Yes, it was. It was fucking beautiful. And I actually got a lot of that when I was reading this 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 article. It felt like he was doing something different. Except he was kind of saying, "Hey man, he was also talking about like this whole year has been pretty fucking crazy and we've dealt with a lot of stuff and I'm going to attend it, it he didn't say it, I don't think explicitly, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he didn't say like I'm gonna attend to my mental health. But I kind of was like, I feel like that's what he was saying. Like, hey, this has been a crazy year, um, with the Black Lives Matter protests, with COVID, with the bubble, trade stuff. I'm already under scrutiny anyway because of my history. I'm going to do something a little different this year, and I'm going to make sure that I concentrate on my team, on winning, on myself, on my play, on on that kind of stuff. And to me, that's what it sounded like. It's a, and then yeah. I, I'm doing this so I don't get fined. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Like, you know, you, this just so that you guys know that I'm not, like, ignoring you or whatever. This is right. my acknowledgement of you. But it's important right. to know a couple things about Irving, uh, too. One, that he was a vocal... Uh, critic of the idea of returning to for the bubble uh saying mm. that and i think I, I i'll have to you know i'll fact check myself after this so not in a relevant way but but i think he explicitly real quick some, just explain just explain what the bubble is to for people who aren't basketball fans yet yeah it was the the nba's attempt okay like we have to shut down the season because of the spread of covid but eventually there were you know, resolution to this because they had, you know, there was a lot of NBA owners who were hurting as a result of the loss of revenue. The resolution was to return in one NBA arena in Orlando and have all the NBA teams who qualify, they came up with the rules to basically find the most, the greatest amount of teams who could come um, without it being ridiculous, uh, would stay in the hotels, the resorts in Disney World. And then they would play in the different arenas that were already there in Disney World, the, the bubble. If it, as it were yeah uh, and Irving was really opposed to this now he was injured so there were no stakes really but also he was very opposed I mean there are a lot of stakes actually it's people people salaries owner salaries and he was I think he explicitly drew this connection of like we're coming back during you know a, a pandemic a depression and protest movements this had already been happening at the time the Black Lives Matter protests um, as predominantly a black workforce to for the you know the sole purpose of making sure that majority white ownership group are able to make ends meet at the end of the at the end of the day like That's for right. us like I can come back in a year and play for the championship my legacy won't be touched or whatever why are we actually coming back it's it's because the mm. uh, Tillman Fertitta the Houston Rockets owner or whatever like his all of his uh his entire investment portfolio was like restaurants casinos and the sport and, and sports the, all of the things that were hit uh, by by the by the pandemic, so he was, and, and people were like critical of him for this. Like you know, this guy thinks he's like woke or some shit <laughs> because he wants mm. to talk. You know, he's making this point. And it's like it's an astute point. It's a fine point to make. And then eventually, right, it bubbled up because you know, excuse the pun, but it bubbled up <laughs> in the in that uh, the Milwaukee Bucks went on you know, or they not not on strike, but they. Um, they, you know, they walked out. They boy, uh, it, they did go on strike. <laughs> People were saying it was a boycott, but yeah, they went on strike and they didn't. It was play a wildcat strike. That's right. It was. It was. It was like a. It was a wildcat strike. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it was for a lot of it. The the subtext and this got buried. 
But the subtext really was like, everybody felt like a fraud. A lot of NBA players felt like, mm. why are we here like doing this really hollow replication of NBA basketball? They're, they're pumping in crowd noise. Uh, you know, <laughs> ESPN announcers, reporters are like asking us like, how does it feel to do this for pro racial justice? And me, the viewer is like, what the fuck are they doing for racial justice? They're playing mm. like it, in this, like, you know, in the same sense that you are, you're playing for God when you, you know, you play, you, you play a game, they ask you how you did after all, oh, you know, all praises due to God. Or, mm. <laughs> and it's like, okay, yeah, I see it. Like, you know, if you can make the, that, uh, you can flip that switch in your head, but really they weren't, you know, they weren't in the streets. Like they actually were when the protest first kicked off. <laughs> they had to be mm. dragged into the bubble, right? So they went on protest for this. And we can get into how that, that was resolved because it gets at the class dynamics internal to the MBPA, the Players Association. Um, but this is like, this also is adds some color to Irving's relationship with media. The way that they responded to him making this astute point, which actually was an expression of what you, you know, a player's, the player's like, consciousness or experience mm. a couple other points on his relationship mm -hmm. to the media he came into the nba in 2011 for the drafted by the cleveland cavaliers the year prior they lost lebron james right to the miami heat and so his whole career early early part of his career he's like 19 years old uh was <laughs> like how are you going to fill the shoes of lebron james this mm. is like the narrative and I, I'm, I can only imagine how alienating it probably feels as a young 19 year old kid uh, to be like, you know, first of all, there's a first order alienation, which is like LeBron James <laughs> and how he had to fill right. the shoes of like this chosen one, Michael Jordan and his lineage. Irving is like the second order alienation. How do you fill the shoes of the man who filled the shoes <laughs> and filled right. them quite well? Um, and so in 2014, LeBron comes back and then it's like, how are the Cavs going to win the title? There was a moment, the, the, the NBA championship, there was a, uh, an interview moment that I'll never forget because it was fucking insane where somebody asks Irving, uh, you know, the question, do, oh, playing for LeBron James or with LeBron James, does it feel like he's a little bit of a father figure to you? And Irving uh -huh. is like, like, you know, visibly shook by the question is like, I, I, my dad is, you know, Diedrich Irving. Like he says his father's fucking name. And it's like, no, LeBron is like yeah. a teammate. Like, I mean, it was just like, because the, the media is trying to pump this kind of mm. narrative, of like this is LeBron coming back. So they're just asking yeah. these ridiculous patronizing questions to guys like like does does this guy appear of yours appear as a father figure to you? Does he seem like a father figure? So I'm sure Irving just has this like decades. Well, long. yeah, and then they win the championship because he played fucking lights out, but nobody talks about him. It was LeBron's team. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. Now basketball heads will remind you they'll be like, man, Kyrie played lights out, but he won. The, the game seven for them against the Warriors, right? He hit that. Yeah, like, he hit the clutch shot to, to win at the end. He's the yeah. Without and, that shot, and, who knows? And his play was insane in that series. But it was LeBron's team, LeBron's title, LeBron's town. Kyrie gets no love. Now, I, it, is there a little bit of like is he maybe pouting a little bit? Maybe, and maybe that's why people kind of don't love him, right? Because he does kind of. You know, there is a little bit of that criticism, too. Like, he goes to Boston, and 
they were starting to kind of heat up, and then he comes in there, and it kind of throws a wrench in their chemistry. And then you get Kemba Walker, and it's kind of like, oh, now things are kind of smooth again, and the flow is kind of back, you know. So there's something about his role, maybe the style of play that, that kind of also rubs people the wrong way. Maybe he's too individualistic. Maybe – I don't know what it is. Maybe it is his eccentricities or something like that. Kind of like grinds the gears or it grates you know, a little bit, and and there's something about it. So I, it, there's a bunch of stuff going on here, but yeah, it is kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, and and one thing I would just with with that because you're exactly right. Like the issue with Irving still, even in that game, like LeBron in Game Seven in 2016 had like 27 points, 11 rebounds, 11 assists, like a triple double. Like Irving hit the shot, but it was it's it's like it's LeBron's. It's like the um, some LeBron puts that on his resume. The, the game or the yes. series in the year. Irving puts the shot. But anyway, you're right about Boston in in like, and just this general thing about Irving as an individualistic player, kind of an, an enigma. I just want to ask NBA fans, consumers of sports, what do y'all want? <laughs> like, I love <laughs> yeah. like watching Irving play because even if I know he's going to go like make eight shots and miss like 20, right? But because, because he's just such like a dazzling player I love the way his mind yeah. works, even if it's just focused in this individual, uh, uh, in this individualistic way, uh, because I like watching basketball. <laughs> but some people yeah. like watching, like you know, really a lot. I see a lot of fans now adopting this, like uh, uh, the 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 perspective of the data analytic, uh, you know, movement, mm. which we can get into with like where what I think that is. Uh, but I do think, you know, it, just to, as long as it's in a simple way, if it's just this way of looking at basketball, which is like, it needs to be this hyper-efficient, optimized product, uh, and you yeah. look at players that way, oh, are they able to hit corner threes uh, at the clip that's above league average? Who gives a fuck? I like watching fun basketball with interesting guys and like... You like the uh, eye test, is what you're saying. I'm, the, see, the that, that's, that's that even adopts this dichotomy that I would reject. <laughs> <laughs> Man, yeah, but yeah, yeah but I mean, okay. yeah, yeah, sure. I'll accept the premise. Yes, I'm an eye test guy yeah, yeah, yeah. in that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of that scene in, in Moneyball, you know, when they're sitting around at the table. Have you seen Moneyball? Yeah, and, you know, they're talking about the, the new sort of like sabermetrics stuff and – uh, you've got all these scouts sitting around and talking about like the eye test, and they're like, they're like, I see it, you know, I see it. And then, fucking, you got Jonah Hill sitting there saying, look, all that matters is the aggregate of on base percentage. I don't give a shit. Like that's it, you know. And Billy Bean is just like, that's it. It's the math. It's the math. So this is interesting because um, we're kind of jumping over a lot of different things here. But if we're gonna talk about data analytics, I have a problem with it because I'm a bit of a romantic. So for me. I don't like the quantification of reality, right? Or the the reduction of reality to extensional quantification, to number, to the unit of of one. As for people following along with Marcus Gabriel, as Marcus Gabriel talks about, I believe in the third or fourth chapter of Fields of Sense. So I have a problem with it because so I was just listening on my walk back to the house to get ready for recording here. And it was Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman, and they were doing their debate thing that they do. And Max Kellerman was talking about whether or not the Philadelphia 76ers, who's going to be the best player on the team this year, right? And he was talking about Joel Embiid. And, like, the way that he talked about Joel Embiid's efficiency, it was like, in the last five minutes of the game, he's the most efficient player with the ball in his hand under these circumstances, with this, this, 
this, this. Now, I get it. I get that that's probably a really useful statistic. All I could think about in my head was just like, God damn, you've just carved this beautiful sport up into all of these little mathematical quadrants. And then you've just reduced it to that. And that's what then is making your assessment on why he's now, therefore, the most important player on the team, right? Rather than the other player. And then the other argument that uh, Stephen A. Smith was making is that Ben Simmons is actually going to be the best player on the team because he does everything. He facilitates the ball. and um, But then he did use some of the analytics, too, that it's like he's the most Something about, like, when he has the ball, he's the most efficient facilitator of three-pointers when he has the ball from anybody in the league. So I don't know how they measure that. But again, like, this is interesting, but this is, I don't know, man. Maybe I'm just an old, old soul, but I don't like talking about basketball like that. Like, I want to, I don't know. It's like he moves smooth or he does something uh, flawlessly or he's got court vision and eyes in the back of his head. I prefer more of like the poetic stuff rather than this fucking quantified stuff. So I don't know. That's just my thing. Yeah. I mean, okay. So the, yeah, like there's a, okay. Charles Barkley a few years ago on inside the NBA, I think hit the nail on the head with like what the divide is. Now he, he phrased it in a strange way. So this is how he phrased it. He said, all these data analytics dudes, they're just nerds who couldn't get any of the girls in high school and now they want to <laughs> act like they're in the game, like they're in the NBA, right? Because they like know how to, yeah, right? And so, but he, he put his finger on the antagonism though, which is like that who is the 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 arbiter of like what a good team, how, how you construct a good team, what's a good shot, who's the best player, what do we really like to see when we're watching you know, NBA basketball, because before the right. data analytics movement, what the fuck were they making decisions? Not data. They were, they weren't making decisions with data. <laughs> right. But, but it was right. different. It was like, there was a different logic to it. You were looking for different things. You wanted a team that could gel in sort of a different sense than what's meant yeah. by gelling, which is like really like this five out, five guys out. You're either attack you're, you want, you know, kind of a motion offense, pick and roll. You want to attract defenders and either get, uh, a lane for a drive for a layup or a wide open three and usually you have the three in the corner now uh, now if you're an NBA if you're a basketball player you're like if you take an 18 footer which is worth two points but it's you know it's your shot better than uh trying to drive or shoot a wide open shoot a, a corner three is like that it, that that's a good shot for you and like i'm a basketball player so like you know, like, what, what are we really talking about here? But to the data analytics nerds, <laughs> that's a bad shot. That's right. an inefficient shot. And maybe that, that's right. that guy shouldn't even be in the NBA because he shoots shots that's that right. we've phased out based on the on the models that we're looking at for most optimized players. So there's like right. a materialist basis for, for, the, for all of this because the dudes who talk about this stuff, like most of the guys who are like managers uh, of basketball teams, they study uh, computer science, you know, statistical modeling, you know, they got like MA, uh, yeah, like uh, PhDs and this shit. Uh, and it's like, you know, you could imagine that, you know, maybe in a different world, they would be in like uh, the venture capital world, but now they're just in the basketball <laughs> totally, world. Totally, <laughs> totally. Yeah, they'd be the quants, man. They'd yeah. be the quants at fucking Goldman and shit like that. So here's here's what I wonder. So like, um, obviously like someone like Jordan, Michael Jordan, generally considered the greatest basketball player of all time. He was not a very good three-point shooter. But that's something that is extremely important for the game today, right? So, like, and I'm sure they've done this, but because you do hear things like 
the the players with the highest player efficiency rating or whatever of all time. And you do see, like, I don't know if that's the statistic, but whatever. You do see, like, Jordan at the top of the list and stuff like that a lot of times, right? Mm. I don't know what that fucking means. Um, or, like, <laughs> even defensive, like, even with, def- like, even the advanced quantitative defensive statistics, he's still up there. So what I wonder is, is do they do, like, deconstructed versions of this where they go back and they say, okay, the old Philadelphia Sixers, the old Boston Celtics, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, can we take the analytics and apply it to them I mean, it'd be a little bit difficult because someone would have to go back and, like, watch all of the footage and be like, in the last two minutes, Magic Johnson with the ball in his hand, down fewer than 10 points is the great at whatever, you know, like that kind of shit. You'd have to really do that. And that would, I don't know if people are doing that. I'm sure they can to an extent, but I don't know if they have, like, the human hours to be able to do all of it. But are they doing, like, reverse engineering where they're going back and kind of, like, saying, oh— uh, what we can do is we can see that these statistics matter because historically the teams that were the best, and that's what matters, right, is who wins. Who ends up with more points than the other team at the end of the game and then throughout consistently throughout the season and then can do it uh, all the way to win championships. That's, that's yeah. the point of the game. So it's always about funneling towards that end goal, which is important. Again, what's the point? To win and ultimately to win championships, right? So then can they do that? Can they like reverse engineer it and say, okay, the Lakers in the 80s, the Celtics in the fucking 60s, whatever. Can they do that and say the reason they were successful, the reason those players were great is because of and then fit it into the quantitative analytic models today. And I'm sure they can to an extent. But I mean, I guess – like, to me, that would then be useful, I guess. It reminds me, and this is the last thing I'll say, there's a there's a, a screenwriting kind of coach. His name is John Truby, and he wrote a book called The Anatomy of Story. And what he did is he did kind of the opposite of what typical screenwriting coaches and authors do. They say, like, oh, let's look forward and say, well, what is it that makes a good story? We want to have all these elements. You have to have these three acts, and you have to have, you know, these exciting moments and stuff like that. What John Truby does is he looks at, like, the 20 best films of all time. He looks at, like, Streetcar Named Desire, and he looks at, like, Citizen Kane, and he basically deconstructs them, and he says, what are the common principles, the common elements that all of these things have from a story perspective? And then he says, now then let's put that in and turn that into the kind of like seven essential, and I think he ends up coming with 22 points, uh, essential points that every single story should follow. And that's because every good story that has ever been written, and he goes all the way back to even like like not just uh, uh, screenplays, but even like novels, Heart of Darkness and shit like that. And he's like, every good story has these seven essential elements, and then the really good stories have like these 22 essential elements. So it's kind of something like that. He's kind of doing doing that as well, right? Kind of like deconstructing. Rather than making a speculative move, it's based on a sort of like empirical pulling out of information. So I imagine that's what they're doing. I just don't know. Does that make sense? The last point? So, I mean, really it's, you know, the the big insight from the data analytics movement is like that three-point shots are worth, worth more than two uh, in certain yeah. circumstances too, and that you want players who can uh, guarantee if you run, you know, whatever kind of offense – uh, it'll get you either a two-point shot or a three-point shot. And then there's other, there's like other nuances too, but like, you know, in a, like, and, and yes, to the, the answer to the first question, like they could do that. Now it's, it's complicated uh, from like, they could reverse engineer the, the validity of, <laughs> of their, of, you know, what they purport to show, but it's uh, limited by the fact that like the three-point shot was introduced in like what, 1976 or something. So that's like, that's like, again like that's the big uh, uh, takeaway. Mm. So so like there was a lot mm. of NBA history that you're forgetting in that. Um, yeah, you know I I think it's really like what 
the data analytics movement is is just like an infiltration of people from that those fields those disciplines into the nba because of what the nba became which is very closely related to urban development post uh 1970s like nba is the center of you know the commercial center of like metropoles around the around the world like around the, around the uh, around the country so like you know like the actual valuations of of teams skyrocketing over the last few years uh because like you know th- they're the ownership groups who buy these teams are in that world turning them into like the center of smart cities so like you know mm. they they're they're in the finance and the basketball, you know, uh, wings of, of NBA. Well, like the New York Knicks are the most valuable franchise and they haven't fucking won in ages. But the reason they're the most valuable franchise is because their assets are the most valuable. Their real estate in the middle of Manhattan and then their brand. So they're asset managers. So this is, this is my problem is with the whole, the, 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 the quantification of the game is just a symptom of the quantification of the socioeconomic system exactly. of life. Yeah. That's the, that's my ultimate problem. That's why I'm really kind of like balking a little bit here. Yeah. To use and so, a baseball term. Yeah. And so that was that was like sort of where I wanted to go in that in the the thing I wrote for New Politics, which and why the NBA functions effectively as like an ideological state apparatus to use jargony terms, mm. right? Is because it's where people go to learn that shit like why that's okay to talk about you know a labor process in this way the point of of the labor process is to optimize uh the product mm. right right and then and obviously like there's a whole panoply of managers and technocrats and analysts and writers and journalists who bother Kyrie Irving who are <laughs> who are layered on top and then of we shit. get and then we get to play fantasy sports with all this stuff yes. too so we get to invest as though these analytics are actually sort of like like we're the like we're on the trading floor or like we're portfolio managers. And so what we do is we actually invest in the assets, the digital assets, the quantified assets. And so when we have a fantasy team and we choose this player, this player, and this player, what we're doing is we're actually doing portfolio management. We're trying to mitigate risk by assembling yeah. a, a team that kind of like deals with variants and stuff like that based on, you know, possibilities for injury or that this person's not a good three-point shooter, but this person is, or this person's a great defender or whatever. And so we're actually using the same tools that fucking Harry Markowitz and Capital Asset, uh, like, managers and shit like that have used for the last, like, 40, 50 years. So, yeah, it's it's a great way. This reminds me of, like, Byung-Chul Han, this idea of, like, kind of turning everybody into entrepreneurs of the self. It's so that we can, like, totally buy into this and invest in this libidinal economic arrangement. And the way that we do it is through the gamification of the quantification of a sport. Mm-hmm. And you do that fantasy sports and whatever else. Me listening to fucking, you know... Max and Steven yell at each other about the analytics and stuff like that. Even even when that makes my blood boil, that's like having some sort of like uh, libidinal effect on me because I'm invested in it already. You yeah, know? yeah. I don't know. I think yeah. that's like you know after after everything is like baked in, they, they that's like the 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 frosting or whatever where you just go and you're like oh like it's it's this <laughs> like <laughs> but yeah but but yeah the the NBA is having a really indicative problem right now, which is like that the most uh, popular parts of their calendar are the NBA draft, which is a fucked up, entire, it's a fucked up thing, <laughs> and free agency. Mm. 
which is, which means that when their fans are most engaged, it's in the transactional windows because that's how they actually relate to the sport. It has nothing to do with basketball. In fact, most of mm. most NBA fans watch basketball in like the ten minute YouTube highlights that are that come in right. like five minutes after the game is done. They'll watch them shits and it's like you know again you could just get your little hitter of basketball like to remind you that this is about basketball but what it's all for is to probably confirm a bias you have through your engagement with the transactional parts of the NBA calendar. Mm. So like who's a you know I listened to it's because I started blogging about basketball in like 2014 and I remember mm. when the dudes who I would blog with like they're great guys but. Uh, they now like I, w- I was reading a piece on on a blog you know to sort of like get my mind back in in uh, what that was like you know, before we talked here and they were just there's like a whole article about like you know the the sacramento kings and whether or not it was good asset management to not accept a trade where they you know received like a draft a, pr- a conditional draft pick four years from now i was like why <laughs> why are we mm. writing about this like you know what i mean like this is what fans yeah. are preoccupied with though well it, yeah. it's so interesting too like who are the stars we love fucking adrian warjanowski we love todd mcshay and in, in the nfl that's the nfl right yeah we love these guys that come on and what they do is they're the ones who are on their phones all the time dealing with the movement the player movement and then also in video games what do we love to do we like to simulate seasons and manage teams and trade players and create players and then also, again, with fantasy football, and then when we're at the bar, what do we do? We complain about this player and that player, and we kind of like put ourselves in the kind of the fantasized role of being the GMs or the owners of these things. And what we gripe about is that our players, the people that we have some sort of supposed claim over, an ownership claim over, they're not producing for us because we are the portfolio managers and they are the assets, and we need them to perform like they're – uh, projections based on these quantitative analyses say that they're going to perform. So what you end up having is this entire system that is really about portfolio management of assets. Yeah, right. Well, it's it's that all the way down. It's turtles all the way down. Fuck. And then and then think about the player. Now let's let's zoom in. You were touching on it a little bit. The player experience here. So they're most yeah. of the time. Why why is the draft fucked up? It's like this thing where you know, in an obvious sense, it's like an eighteen year old kid who grew up in like a small town in North Carolina or whatever. All of a sudden, he gets drafted by this team in like Toronto. You know, who, you know it doesn't matter where, <laughs> Sacramento, California. And now, and yeah. now he's shooting a corner three, and some fan is yelling at him about his player efficiency rating or some shit, <laughs> right? <laughs> he's, he's probably like on his yeah. salary, which is a very hefty salary. Let's say he was like taken in the, the end of the first round of the draft. He's making like two, three million a year, but like. You know, the nature of the beast is like he's probably got a wider array of dependents. He probably doesn't know how to manage this this money that well. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a whole litany of problems that follow there from. And just also in, in the in like, what am I doing and how, do, how am I relating to it? My man is completely alienated <laughs> or estranged. At least mm. in that everything about the sport, um, like how fans engage with it and even how the players are kind of led to engage with it because it's, it's more or less the same thing through the media, you know, yeah. uh, products of it, uh, has nothing to do with, like, the player experience. It, it is It has to do with, like, how they fit into this model, <laughs> right? Mm. How the team fits into the model, how this guy fits into the model, the five-year, uh, you know, asset uh, mm. management window. Uh, players, will, yeah, players will get traded or stacked up against, like, a 2020, you know, a, a draft pick three years in the future. Oh, man, you know, what's the expected value of the player versus the expected value of that pick? 
It's like I can't imagine why how this is healthy for 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 you know people in their formative years, All right? Mm. And so you know I think about that in now I'm now we're back in the bubble, right? And players yeah. are like, I'm here because a bunch of NBA owners needed to make ends meet. Uh, the entire way I relate to the sport is not is mm. through this like uh, logic that's instrumental in them ma- making ends meet. <laughs> Uh, protests are roiling outside where I came from. I was drafted to this fucking team, <laughs> uh, mm. you know, away from my family where I grew up. And I'm just here right. doing this, you know, I don't even know what. I'm seeing Mickey Mouse, who's a black minstrelsy character. <laughs> on <the screen>. uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I can only imagine how alien it is. And I'm not trying to be like, oh, you know, boohoo for millionaires. Um, because, yep. because, again, the point is that it's uh, extensible to the experience of many uh, people. Um, uh, or at least how they relate to the labor process uh, in this modern. And it's so interesting because I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I was really influenced, I've been really influenced over the last, let's say, year and a half by the work of Michel Fair, who you may have heard me talk about on the podcast previously, but he actually was a visiting scholar at the University of Sydney for a bit. He wrote a book called Rated Agency, and he says that actually what characterizes neoliberalism is not um, the sort of notion of human capital that that Becker and Post kind of like Becker uh, neoclassical economics has focused on, but rather it's this tendency towards uh, maintaining your rating that is ultimately most important. In the form of nation states, it's maintaining your um, interest rates so that you can continue to court bond investment in the uh, language of the corporation or the firm. Um, He derives a lot of his research from Ronald Coase and Coase's work on the firm. It's really about maintaining your stock valuation, your stock price, and again, your ability to um, uh, receive cheap lines of credit. Um, and then, of course, for stock buybacks and uh, other other purposes like that. And then for the individual, for the the consumption or for the um, constitution of subjectivity, he says this takes the form of becoming uh, concerned with reputational value. So it's about building up your CV. It's about um, having followers and likes. It's about um, having a, a positive disposition so that people will like you and they will want to invest in you and what that makes all of us is all of us become investors so we have our own assets of our portfolios as individuals who are maintaining our reputational portfolio and we then have to diversify it in such a way so that we can court other people's investments which is them coming to our LinkedIn page and maybe that'll turn into a job or they'll kind of hook us up with somebody else who eventually will give us a job or whatever it is and then we do it with our tinder profiles and we do it with our freaking um, Twitter profiles it's all about trying to like create and manage these reputational assets Assets. So what I wonder then is should we not also think of NBA players not even as wage um, laborers anymore because this also then changes the, the kind of like fundamental dynamics of the economy. It's no longer about like uh, the, the share over um, profits between wage wage earners and capital but rather now it becomes something more about like the investor-investee relationship, right? Or um, creditor-debtor. You know, we could think about someone like Mar- uh, Lazzarato and uh, someone like this these kind of terms. And then what you end up having is what you then have is, is these players, they're not so much um, wage laborers as they are uh, inputs. They are asset inputs into portfolios. And then, of course, they themselves have their own portfolio, which is who's their, uh, who, who, who do they have sponsorship deals with? You know, what market are they in? Um, what is their Instagram account and Twitter account? How do they 
comport themselves in the media. That's a part of their reputational value. So it's all about becoming these little mini portfolio managers within this other system of portfolio management where you are an asset. And so I, I don't exactly know what this means in terms of the constitution of subjectivity outside the fact of it turns us into like these frenetic self-obsessed uh, creatures that are constantly trying to work on ourselves so that we can like get more people to invest in us. But um, does that mean then that fundamentally they're not even really wage earners, but rather what they're concerned with is just simply maintaining their stock valuation, so to speak, right? They're just trying to, and they, you hear that all the time, right? What's their draft stock? right? The draft stock, which is, again, are these teams going to invest in them, right? And so are they even wage earners or are they just simply financialized assets in a way? Yeah. Right? Well, yeah, two things. One, you can see why what Irving's doing is uh, irrational or uh, disciplined. Because first of all, I think, what, you know, mm. at the level of subjectivity, at the very least, and Young Han does talk about this, how it tends toward a disciplinary and a disciplinary society, right? Because everybody's mm. one, it's like, how do you, how else can you distinguish yourself? One is the positive thing, making sure that your, you know, asset maximizing potential is, you know, near peak. And then also you want to make sure that you're criticizing other people pointing out where they're fucked up so that you're their stock could tank ah, <laughs> relative to yours. Right. So it tends toward, yeah, yeah. It tends toward a transparency because everyone is supposed to be showing off you know how they're uh you know you know who they really are and obviously only the good things and then yeah disciplining other <laughs> people so that you can point out how yours yours is better than theirs uh but <laughs> um and what irving is doing is like you know uh, it, first of all it doesn't play that fucking game it doesn't play the game <laughs> And it also uh, top what you would imagine it tops his own st- uh, stock. It turn turns him tanks his own stock, turns him into mm. a uh, uh, you know an enigma. Can you build around him? It's too individualistic. Well, um, we can use the language of finan- finance. He's too volatile. Yeah, he's yeah, too yeah, volatile exactly. of an asset, right? Yeah. And the woman, I'm gonna and blow your mind. Volatility Austin. is high risk, high reward too, right? So yeah, yeah, he could hit game. He hit, hit the shot, the game winning shot in Game Seven of the 2016 Finals, or he could just be uh, kind of weird in the media for a whole year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and destroy your team chemistry. Like destroy team chemistry. Right. Be you know, be better without you know when he's not in the lineup, your team performs better. You yeah, know? like with Brooklyn this the past year. Yeah, exactly. And, when he and was on the bench, right? They were performing better. So let's go to a teammate of his in Brooklyn. Spencer Dinwiddie. Do you know anything yep. about his most recent contract in Austin? No, did he? I know that he like was somebody that came out of nowhere, like for the yeah. most part, and was everyone was like Dinwiddie, Dinwiddie. Like he just was like tearing shit up once Kyrie went down. But no, what's what did he get fucked or no, did no, he no. get rewarded? His most recent contract is the actual expression of what we were just talking about. So he signed a okay. three-year, thirty-six million dollar contract, but he had it negotiated where. It could basically be something that investors could in or, you know, it would be this. So obviously the the average salary is like 12 million. I think a certain amount of that could be invested. Like people could engage. His yearly salary was a portfolio or a a liquid capital. So it's already a derivative. Yeah. yeah. Derivative. Yes. And like the the idea, right, is that he would be able to get them back what they they put in or, or, yeah, you know. I just don't know how this shit works, but this is what you, you're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? No, yeah. Yeah. And then he would obviously get back what he had and then some. And everyone, everyone would, yeah. would make up like bandits. But it was like they were giving him this line of, of credit. So he gets, he, he has like, yeah, he basically has a $12 million um, portfolio, yeah. let's say, per yeah, year. Yeah. And other investors can choose to work um, with him. 
and work with him and they will invest in that $12 million to try to get some kind of return at whatever the rate is that I don't know how they would how they what, what they're tying it to but somehow if he plays well maybe and his endorsement levels go up then somehow um, their 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 investment will get some sort of return that is higher than what they put in or something silly like that yeah I want to like confirm and then does his is, so wait, yeah, does his yeah. contract does his contract valuation fluctuate so like if he underperforms and they stop investing in him throughout the year for example does he not make 12 million and he only makes like 10 million? No, it's it's a guaranteed salary, so it's like okay. great in uh, you know prospect or whatever. But uh, yeah, I mean the idea is that he just wanted to make sure that it was I guess squared away with the league that he could do something like this, which is like y'all will pay me twelve million per year or whatever the you know, the scale is. But like just know that I'm I'm shooting to make more than the twelve million based on like my you know uh, in you know. Uh, Ability as an investor, the side thing, people investing in, you know, the Spencer Dinwiddie <laughs> uh, experience or, 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 or uh, yeah. brand. Uh, yeah, it, that's yeah. 100%. It's, it's basically like a special purpose vehicle is what we might call it. Like his yearly salary is a particular special purpose vehicle that investors can invest in, but he's got a guarantee that he's not going to go below $12 million, but there's incentives to maybe increase above that. Yeah, yeah. So so I'm reading now the, the article because I uh, don't don't know this shit. I'm just like, I was... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dinwiddie would convert at least $4.95 million and up to $13.5 million of his contract into an investment vehicle. A sizable portion would become the basis yeah. of a security. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who's DFS? That's the, the firm. Yeah, Dream Fan Shares... Uh, uh, would serve as the wow. platform. Wow. Okay. So for this issues. is crazy. Yeah. So this is this is a tendency that's happening. People are doing this with students and their student loan portfolios, where they're they're doing the same sort of thing, but they're investing in the student by basically saying, "Yeah, yeah. So you're gonna go to med school. Well, we're gonna invest in you, so that when you get out, we get like a portion of your salary for 40 years after you graduate, even if it's only like a small percentage. But if we can invest in a million doctors at one percent, then uh, whatever you guys make for 50 years, we actually get a little portion of, or whatever it's stuff like that is starting to happen now as well and it disincentivizes <laughs> idiosyncrasy you know idiosyncrasy That's any right. like erratic quote-unquote behavior entertaining it's a social credit system <laughs> what it is a social this is a social credit system this is like yeah this is like you better toe the line because you are a performing asset and anything you do according to the bottom line which is according to the logic of uh, of of financial profits, anything you do that affects that negatively um, will be viewed as as bad, and that's that's the issue. So goddamn man, now I'm even more angry about the quantification and uh, analytics of sports because now I'm th- I never thought about this shit before, and now now it totally makes sense. Yeah. So it's, yeah. And, and there's already like you know like like what is the function of a ideological state apparatus? It's sort of like again where this stuff gets habituated. Like no one, people, yeah. you know, the the response to this, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie story was like, oh, well, that's very, very prudent of him. You're very, you know, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, responsible, yeah. like, right. So, and, you know, like, and so now it's like, you know, the idea that, you know, me, how do, how am I as a 20 or yeah, 18 year old student going to differentiate myself? It's like, uh, from, you know, my peers, the, you know, you know uh, in America, yeah. at least just ridiculous amount of people who are in you know, shooting for a higher ed, you know, higher ed is going to be the, you know, my ticket out of uh, downwardly mobile hell. Uh, yeah. It's, 
my relationship to you know whatever my version of dream fan shares is <laughs> you know the the instead yeah. of a job uh career career fair we you actually have the fair of like the the different okay uh, now let me think about this so now in 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 the language of of union activism workers could come together to create collective bargaining agreements to create power and solidarity to protect their wages to protect living standards to fight for other things is it possible that then you would get, and then is this, this is, so is this necessarily a bad thing? Is it possible that what you will then essentially get is a bunch of assets like Dimwitty and let's say 20 other players who will come together and they will say, we will pool our assets together to create a larger special purpose vehicle. And then now let's take it out of the context of these multimillionaire basketball players. And let's say, what about a fraternity at a university? And they say, you join our fraternity, there's a hundred of us, and what we do is we all become part of the Sigma Tau Upsilon, whatever the fuck it is, uh, a special purpose vehicle, and for the next 70 years of our lives, we um, invest into this, this, this essentially this kind of like financial securitized portfolio, and then other people can invest in it, and that will help us, that'll give us some sort of like you know, dividends, maybe quarterly dividends as they're investing in us. And then we, of course, will give them returns as well. Like, does that actually, in a financialized world, does that divvy up value in a way that is more equitable, right? Because that's really the concern from like, let's say a Marxist or a post-Marxist perspective is how is value produced and then how is value distributed, right? Or, or shared, like from the value creators to those who are kind of disproportionately taking it but if this is done and we all become investors in our own value production but under these different regimes of kind of like financial portfolio investment but yet we get a return is that is that a is that like the future of like labor quote quote unquote labor immaterial labor or whatever it would even be called i don't know yeah you know it, it would so like i mean the last point or, yeah, part is the most crucial. Like, is, as long as it gets a return, you know, at least then everybody yeah. involved will kind of keep doing it. And then you think about, you know, it has to be broad enough, or else it's just going to be this island without you know, the the resources or know how of how to, you know, actually make this a, a profit maximizing enterprise. Uh, yeah, you know? <laughs> and you know, you would imagine if, especially if that, uh, uh, you know, group of people had a class consciousness or whatever, or they, they were doing it for this reason explicitly of, you know, we're, I'm breaking with the model. We're not going to be a part of this, you know, all of the, the five, uh, uh, investment, uh, or, uh <laughs> like venture capital funds who invest in students. They're all allied with, you know, uh, big business, uh, X, you know, so we would, yeah. you would imagine that they would immediately just get like shut out, <laughs> um, right. For many opportunities. So and then you can also, well, and you can imagine power too. Then you could imagine whoever these investors are. Let's say again, let's take the example of the frat. If your credit goes to shit or like if you're not working for a good enough company, they could probably come down and put the hammer on you and be like, no, we're going to exert control over and make sure that you actually produce more so that you earn more in wages so that you're investing more in the portfolio so that it gets a more sort of a higher degree of return for everybody involved. So there, then there would be ways of power manipulation and control. You know, they could be like, oh, you're not living in that neighborhood because that's a shitty house, so you can't live there. So then you can see again, like maybe even like stratification, social stratification could also become a part of this, right? And so I could see a really dark side to this as well. There's another yeah. – there's like another form – like class formation among NBA players that might be – 
helpful to think about here, which is what LeBron James is doing with Clutch Sports, yeah. which right, which is his agency that he started when he was like, I don't know how old, nineteen, twenty. He, he, I think he had dealt with an agent for a few years and was like, "Fuck this," you know, like a. I, it's a little bit like if you saw the Dave Chappelle uh, uh, stand-up that was a few, like maybe a week ago, like Dave Chappelle uh, you know, slash Unforgiven, and he was just going in on like, what if, you know, what if, and he's obviously, it's a rhetorical question because he's answering in the affirmative, what if like the agents and the executives are all in the same team, and they're just like <laughs> making sure that this thing called the artist, <laughs> the player or whatever, is... Under, under the boot enough and, you know, he's making enough to sort of uh, uh, satiate him. But really, like, the, the main reason that we're here in the room signing this deal for him is so that we reaffirm our relationship, our partnership, right? And LeBron yeah. probably un- understood this dynamic from an early age, found someone he trusted to be his player agent instead. And now you see him exerting, um, you know, as they their roster is, you know, grown. They have, like, Anthony Davis... A star a basketball player, you know, signed to Clutch Sports. Other luminaries. I don't want to, you know, mm. new names, right? Uh, they're like exerting some power and influence against the the NBA owners and teams, and people mm. are calling this, you know, this is like hilarious phrases that they use for this: the player empowerment era, because you know the idea being, you know. Now players are calling the shots, whereas before it would just be a manager saying, you know, we're trading five guys, you know, across the country because it's in our interest as mm. a, you know, as a franchise trying to think about the long term, blah blah blah. Now players are like, no, I want to go there, you know, and uh, and I'm and I'm gonna uh, I'm not mm. gonna resign here until you help out my my friend, <laughs> you know, right. give him the contract that he's looking for, and then oh, because I know that I'm the big fish that you want. This actually happened like uh, two weeks ago. Anthony Davis didn't resign with the Lakers. Until uh, a lower level player uh, was able to get like a ten plus million dollar contract offer from the Lakers, and then he was like, "Okay, oh. yeah, did the formality, signed the thing." Um, now, obviously, so does this weaken union power, though? So, like the existing, pl- yeah, it does. Okay, <laughs> it do- it's yeah, like yeah. a mafia. It's like a little mafia in the NBA. That's exactly what. That's what I was yes. thinking. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's like a little organized syndicate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like it has the contradictory uh, tendencies of a mafia. It's not aligned with capital or the executives, but it's certainly not an expression of a player class consciousness or whatever. Because it's LeBron and and the, his confidants and then the people who find themselves in the LeBron orbit. Who, but the, but they're they're fighting the the NBA owners exactly. But again, the only reason that this shit works is because it's, it's they have a LeBron. In the case of the frat example you were given, you know those frat bros probably got to be rich as hell for that thing to to, to work, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> to have enough startup capital to be able to right. Uh, and then you wonder if they would would they have the subjective constitution to do that uh, entire project in the first place, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, money, exactly. So, yeah. yeah, it would. The only way this would work is if it was already like one of those rich frats that was like their dad owned Goldman and yeah. it's like the Goldman frat. And then they're like, yeah, totally financialize us, yeah. bro. Dude, let's like, do let's the, do the do proletarian this. revolution for the summer. Fuck it, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. I'm going to I'm gonna say let's stop here and let's put an ellipsis unless there's one thing. Like what's the one burning thing that we didn't get to talk about that you want to talk about? Let's have it be the last thing. If there's nothing, then let's put an ellipsis here and let's let Troy listen to this episode. Love, We love you, Troy. And then let's do this again in a few weeks and we can kind of expand on this. What do you, Is there anything you want to say or do you want to kind of just no, put a hold here? No, nothing that I would want to go long on. I do want to just say real quick, Troy, I'm not I, – I am auditioning to join you in conversation, not to bump you <laughs> off in basketball conversations. 
But the, the thing that I, I, I think we should definitely draw, try to draw the connection between these, uh, you know, what we're identifying in the NBA here, and obviously it has all of its implications for the you know, the social space, you know. Uh, like you, you, you were drawing the right connections to, you know, for people from a Marxist, post-Marxist perspective. Uh, we should dr- yeah. definitely draw the connection between that and the rise of Silicon Valley as a force in American politics, global politics, mm. I suppose. Uh, because a lot of that shit, like, uh, to, to give you a taste then, the King's mm. owner, Sacramento King's owner, Vivek Ranadive, uh, is like from, so he was originally an owner of the Golden State Warriors. And they're all from this Silicon Valley bubble. He like founded Tipco or some shit. And, uh, okay. and he was, he gave an interview in 2015 where he describes the process that led to him buying the Kings, uh, which were at that point, like a, you know, podunk, like, you know, nothing, uh, you know, it was like the 2008, the recession really hit the ownership group hard. And they, it was the Maloofs, this laughing stock. Oh uh, yeah. 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 He says that the mayor of Sacramento reached out to him and he was originally like not interested. I have this thing. I'm good. And then he, he says in the interview and you know, I realize, and he gives this weird story about like, you know, that my heart is with the people or whatever. And then, and, <laughs> and that's why I needed to buy the Kings for 500 and something million dollars with this other group of Silicon Valley people. And now they're re they're remaking Sacramento as basically like a, fi- a, a connective. It's like the, you know, a, a feeder system for Silicon Valley, or uh, if Silicon Valley has uh, like people who work at one of these like Silicon Valley companies that like, they make like a hundred thousand dollars a year, but they can't afford to live in uh, San Francisco. They live in Sacramento, and they're doing the, right. the railway system <laughs> to you know connect them there uh, because you know now all of a sudden we need uh-huh. a whole infrastructure project, and then other surrounding cities as well. Silicon Valley money's there trying to re- renovate, gentrify the area up so that it can absorb mm. labor from Silicon Valley. And all of these guys talk about basketball in this stupid way that we've been talking about for the last, like, hour. <laughs> right? Hmm. And, it's, and so, again, it's just, like, it, it's, it's a broader process that's, that it, hmm. its implications are here. It, clear for us to identify because we're, we can be, like, fans of this thing called the NBA. Um, that's right. But it, it's invisible when it's in our day-to-day life. But it's, it, 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 the impl- it implicates us just the same. Yeah, and, and it's creating the world... It, to use a religious term, it's creating the world in the image of the god that that rules it, right? In, in and, the interview I was talking about, Vivek Ranadive is talking about Western Civilization 3.0. Mm, yeah, that's scary shit, man. Because no one contests it because it sounds cool and it sounds sexy and it fits with all of like the tech bros that the fucking the the guys from Wired and the Elon Musks and so there's like there's a knowledge regime that is also influencing you get guys like Gary V that are out there that are getting people to get super stoked on this and you've got the influencer culture that is also driven by this same thing and um I just finished an article that should be coming out in the next like couple months here I'll I'll be tweeting about it I'm sure but where I I draw on some of the work from Nick Cernick he wrote an article about abstraction and and kind of like the development of the quantification uh, the logic of quantification and stuff like that but um I was talking about like the metaphysics of the day when the metaphysics of the day the sort of like the first principles of the day 
are driven by, for example, let's say this particular type of analytical quantifiable logic, then that means that everything is potentially quantifiable. And not only is everything potentially quantifiable, but then it gets even worse in the Joseph Vogel's work. He talks about oikodicy. He uses like the notion of theodicy, that not only does it explain how the way the world is, but then there's a moral element to this. Then says this is the way the world ought to be, and it justifies the way things are. So not only should the world and could the world be quantifiable, but it must must be quantified because that's the way everything best runs. And so it becomes this theological system as well. And I think this also fits in with Gabriel. This becomes then this all-encompassing domain, a singular world, a single like world of worlds, the world of worlds that's driven by the metaphysics, which conflates metaphysics and ontology to price or to, to number or to the singular unit or to the quantified reality, something like that. And therefore that becomes the barometer by which everything is measured. And, and, and it becomes a heavy taskmaster that imposes burdens on us that we must continually feed into and operate under. And then it becomes a self-reinforcing system. And it isn't, it isn't the old Marxist notion of alienation where the workers are against it. It's, it's libidinal economy like Leotard writes about where he says, no, they loved it. They enjoyed being in the factory, which is an affront to say that sort of thing to certain people. But for us, no, we enjoy listening to Elon Musk. We enjoy thinking about uh, how we can invest in uh, the transactional element of our sports teams. We enjoy the gamification of datafied reality. So it's it's it makes and it makes it much more difficult then to contest. It makes it much more difficult to think of something outside of it, which is why then I start thinking, okay. Maybe there are positive ways to build portfolios that that can produce value and then give a proper return on the value create or give a proper return to the value creators from within this new datafied world. But I don't know if that's just me kind of giving up giving up the game, you know, and kind of just saying like capitulating too much. I, I really don't know what to do. Because I feel like there's no outside. When you start thinking, the only maybe maybe the only way is to then say, well, we just reject that world. There has to be a qualitatively different world, which then is a completely different metaphysical program. But who the fuck gives a shit about metaphysics except for people like me, you, and Troy? Yeah, you know? I mean, like, it has nobody to be built. Cares about it has to be built just like this world is being built, right? And so it's yeah. like, you know, how do you do that though when you and anyone you would want to build that world? with is in the world that you're trying to reject with the <laughs> so i mean yeah, yeah that's why you try to find the aporias within the world that's the, you know you know that's the basic thing that's why it's a good impulse yours but i yeah i mean right now in in the span of this conversation uh we we need some very rich frat brothers or else uh, uh, <laughs> or else we need to think about your idea a little more yeah if you're out there and you want to start whatever the owls at dawn special purpose vehicle yeah i'm fucking game whatever dude you can invest in my assets. I don't got much to give, but I'll get. I'll put a little money into a little portfolio. You can get fifty thousand of us. That's what we got in monthly subscribers. And yeah, well, yeah, maybe we can just we can be the parliament. It'll be the parliamentary special purpose vehicle. I don't know. Is that already? Yeah, I mean, after OnlyFans is is done, it's gonna be you can invest <laughs> in my assets. <laughs> That's it. That's it, dude. That's it. But only part of my body you can invest in. It's not the whole body. You can invest in just little pieces of my intellectual labor or my emotional labor or my attention labor. You can invest in how much time I spend on Twitter. That's what you can invest in or something. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how that works, but I'm sure at some point, man. Universalize okay. the Spencer, Spencer Dinwiddie contract. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
All right, dude. Where can people find you on the internet if they want to reach out? Like if they want to read some of your stuff that you've written as well. Um, I have a link tree, which feels gross to say. You could also find me on Twitter at Omar Basha ninety six. That's O M A R B A S H A nine six. Uh, but the link tree, it's just my name, Adam Badawi. Like link the the link tree link backslash Adam Badawi. You can find some of my writing there. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm in I'm in I'm in your world. I'm uh, I'm I'm yeah. yeah. You know, you can find me invest in my assets, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sounds good. Um, so we'll go ahead and wrap up there. Thanks everybody for tuning in. As I said, if you're a patron already, go and vote in the poll so that we can get that out and do the patron chosen episode as soon as possible. Also, check out our merch page, owlsatdawn.com. Check out my Insta where you can see some of uh, the merch up there. It's uh, AUS underscore H A Y. I think that's pretty much it, man. Let's just say peace, yeah? Peace.